Welcome to this podcast on peace processes and negotiations. Produced here at Queen's University Belfast, this is part of a series created in the university's Faculty of Arts, Humanities and Social Sciences, focusing on the ideas and research of academic and other experts here at Queen's in relation to the study of conflict. I'm Richard English, Professor of Politics at Queen's University Belfast, and I'm joined today in this conversation by Professor Michael Semple. Michael Semple holds a practitioner chair at the Senator George J. Mitchell Institute for Global Peace, Security and Justice at Queen's University Belfast. Between 2009 and 2013, he was Senior Fellow and Director of the Transitional Justice Programme at the Carr Centre for Human Rights Policy at the Harvard Kennedy School in Cambridge, Massachusetts. A leading expert on Afghanistan, Michael Semple has, among his many other roles, worked for the United Nations Special Mission for Afghanistan and the United Nations Assistance Mission for the same country. He's currently team leader at the local Peace Coordination Office, advising the Afghan National Security Council and the New Reconciliation Council on peace strategies. Michael Semple, you've long argued that in terms of Afghanistan, an end to conflict involves seizing opportunities for peacemaking in terms of local peace, rather than in the pursuit of a grand bargain at the national level. Can you say something about that argument, please? Yes, I believe that much of the the conflict in Afghanistan uh, is waged way beyond the the view of the national and international actors. They are barely able to understand, let alone affect it. Uh, they we have seen over the past two years we've seen a noble effort from the United States to try and engineer progress towards a grand bargain, a a deal which might end the war in Afghanistan. It's still elusive. The war continues. And yet, around the country, I see examples of Afghan conflict actors who are already moving to try and wind down the conflict in their area. So the grand bargain is still proving elusive. And yet some parts of Afghanistan now are free of conflict based upon the efforts of the the fighters on both sides in those areas. You've been involved in a wide range of projects, and that's involved also your work with the British Academy's Political Settlements Research Programme. And as I mentioned, you're involved in the Mitchell Institute here at Queen's University, Belfast. Can you say something, please, about the work you've done through both bodies, the British Academy Project and Queen's, and something about your view of the importance of academic institutions to the pursuit and establishment of peace? Well, it's uh, sometimes a bit difficult to distinguish between, obviously, you know, the the, the work one does wearing uh, wearing different hats. Um, I think I've worn my, my Queen's hat while uh, participating in research on the um, the political settlement project. Uh, one of the, the main um, contributions that I made uh, to that was uh, helping to um, uh, put together a, a volume on perspectives about the peace process in Afghanistan, uh, which was you know, done, uh, done you know, for the, the British Academy project. Uh, and we produced it in autumn of 2018, uh, which outlined the ideas of, on 
uh, on how it was possible to uh, approach peace in Afghanistan bottom up using an incremental approach, step by step, um, uh, rather than waiting for the the grand bargain. Now, the interesting thing was that you know, lots of uh, you know, lots of people contributed ideas to this, and I had a chance to sit with the um, uh, the U.S. envoy who was put in charge of the uh, of the peace process and talk it through with him. And this is one of those f- the fascinating cases of the interaction between um, academia uh, yeah, and policy at the the highest level. Uh, um, you know, because you, you you work on some some evidence and some ideas, you get a chance to um, uh, describe and advocate them to somebody who has a chance um, to to work on this. In this case, you know, Zulmay Khalilzad, very you know, very clever, very accomplished um, person leading the U.S. effort, uh, but he had a different set of priorities and uh, and approach um, uh, was. Uh, determined to pursue a um, an elite bargain, attempt to get this uh, what you know, we call the, this, the 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 grand bargain because he was in a hurry. Um, so he clearly you know engages with our ideas, pursues something else, doesn't achieve the um, the outcome he wants, and so in a sense, over the past two years, there's been a, a sort of a creative tension in these. Um, uh, and these approaches to the uh, to the peace process, I have continued to feed um, evidence from our work um, through to Ambassador Khalilzad and his team. They have continued to pursue um, their uh, so far unsuccessful attempts at a grand bargain. But of course, they, you know, they've um, they've um, uh, done some important things in terms of the U.S. deal with the Taliban. It hasn't delivered peace in Afghanistan, um, uh, but it has kept them engaged uh, and. Uh, now we're at this critical stage where um, uh, they reckon they can trigger um, for, uh, national level negotiations between the Afghan government and the Taliban. We're still saying that we've seen no evidence of a serious, serious intention to engage at the national level. Um, but now uh, there are uh, Taliban at the subnational level saying, you know, we are up to discuss the future of the country, um, even if the national level negotiators aren't. Um, so after two, two years of this, in a sense, creative tension, um, uh, I think that uh, I mean, all sides are going to have to be um, rethinking what is the relationship between uh, national level engagement on the on the peace process and the and the subnational. Um, and uh, I'm delighted that it is possible to contribute um, sort of you know, academically sound evidence to that process. So this is one of these this is one of these you know cases where um, we have um, yeah the academic method producing evidence. Um, which is you know relevant to the lives of millions millions of people and will hopefully help um, for uh, informed decisions uh, on uh, on which will rest the the success or otherwise of the peace process and, and you mentioned there Michael the attempted deals between the United States and the Taliban uh, does your belief in the capacity for subnational progress? and for local peace 
mean that your view of that kind of pursuit of agreement or the agreement which there was in February of this year, that your view is an optimistic one in terms of peace in that country? Let's make a distinction between the, the deal between the United States and the Taliban movement and a, yeah, a, a grand bargain in Afghanistan among all the Afghan actors. In, uh, on the 29th of February, uh, Ambassador Khalilzad signed a deal on behalf of the United States with a representative of the Taliban movement, uh, essentially agreeing that the, the United States uh, would conditionally uh, start the withdrawal of its troops from Afghanistan in, in return for a promise from the, uh, the Taliban uh, that they would not harbor foreign terrorists and that they would proceed towards a, uh, a political process amongst Afghans. Now, what that, yeah, that did not address any of the political issues about how Afghanistan would be uh, governed in future. Uh, it uh, essentially, you know, it touched on what was the, the reason why the US got in, engaged in Afghanistan back in 2001, the issue of um, uh, the, the threat to international security and that of the US from uh, terrorists based in Af Afghanistan. And uh, it provided a framework for US troops um, getting out. Ostensibly, that's what the US and the, and the Taliban were fighting about, but didn't touch on um, the drivers of conflict, the grievances which have kept the, the fighting going on in Afghanistan for 40 years. Um, that's all, in a sense, um, uh, kicked down the road. And uh, what, um, for, uh, what I have observed on the basis of the, uh, the research um, uh, has been that the, the Taliban leadership uh, has, uh, is not yet ready to compromise, has not embraced um, uh, compromise on the, uh, the political issues amongst Afghans around the uh, distribution of power, the sort of religious identity of the state, uh, the whole, uh, the whole notion of, uh, the claim, the claim to a political monopoly of power, um, which the, the Taliban movement have through their idea of Islamic emirate. I mean, that they still, the official position of the Taliban is that, um, they hold up, uh, their, uh, their leader, um, for their emir. Uh, as the, the political come religious head of, uh, of all Afghans. Um, uh, so the, my, the, uh, my observations have been that the, the political compromise has not yet been embraced. Uh, and uh, the, um, so this is why um, we say that there are major, major question marks about the prospects for uh, political negotiations. I don't think any of, any of us, those of us who are advocates of uh, local peacemaking are not arguing against the idea of um, th uh, of national negotiations. Uh, au contraire, what we've been arguing is that progress in local peacemaking uh, may make a useful contribution to setting the conditions for an eventual resolution of the national level conflict. Um, so it's not a um, it's not an either or. There's a possibility of a complementary relationship. Uh, I uh, I anticipate that if 
uh, it does prove possible to convene some level national, national negotiations rather than producing a rapid fix, as we know that Ambassador Khanizad has promised he can orchestrate. Uh, they're likely to, uh, to drag on um, interminably uh, and the, the sub-national level pro uh, provides a, a possibility for generating progress um, during the, sort of the, you know, the, the likely deadlock in the national talks. Um, so the interesting thing is, you know, there's, the, there's a possibility of, you know, of complementarity between the two levels. And one of the, um, one of the fascinating uh, aspects of uh, local peacemaking at a time when uh, progress has been, you know, absent or glacially slow on the national level uh, is that uh, you know, uh, we have frequently documented evidence um, of both the civilian population and combatants on both sides um, f uh, basically being um, you know, fatigued of the war, uh, committed to finding a, a, an early solution. Uh, and local peacemaking provides an outlet for that. There's a way for people to engage. Um, just, uh, I mean, just yesterday, I was uh, talking with um, f uh, some Taliban leaders who are trying to uh, uh, basically halt violence in their province. Uh, they're finding part of the movement, which of course is, you know, being is responsive to the national leadership, is trying to put together a yeah, um, uh, another offensive. Uh, and so Taliban leaders themselves uh, orchestrated a, yeah, a delegation from civilians uh, basically laying it laying it down to Taliban in their areas that we will no longer tolerate uh, your armed men moving into our area uh, trying to uh, attack our district um, you know, if you're going to try and launch an operation basically you know, shoot us all first um, uh, carefully or orchestrated and choreographed amongst the Taliban themselves to provide a local legitimacy um, for halting the fighting. Um, this is a this is a process which, of course, is going on well beyond the ken um, of the the national and the international actors, and yet is extremely important for affecting the uh, the, the dynamics of the violence itself. And might be one of the ways in which there's decisive change by the sounds of it. You, you're, you're speaking to us today from Afghanistan and you've mentioned aspects of war weariness. Can you say something for people about what the war and the lived experience of war looks like in rural Afghanistan, for example, now? And something about the ways in which people have adapted to 40 years of violent conflict in the country? Yes, you could sit in an Afghan city uh, you know, for months or years and barely get a sense of a conflict being uh, underway. Um, you know, sitting in while while in the the capital city, the only hints I get of conflict is you see military aircraft flying overhead, or on some evenings when you know, when I've been driving home, uh, I see newly delivered casualties uh, being brought to the emergency hospital. So the 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 city is largely cocooned inside a a security belt with little immediate sign of the the conflict, at least to the undiscerning. Whereas in rural areas and particularly in contested rural areas, uh, the, you know, the conflict is a reality. Uh, there's, um, uh, you know, offensives mean that 
our places places change uh, change change sides, change hands. Um, uh, so that uh, if the the government tries to run a clearance operation into Taliban held territory, or the Taliban try to take over villages which have previously been uh, allied with the the government, um, that means that. Uh, you either have to, you know, basically get on get on the front line and try and defend your area, or you have to f- uh, flee the area with uh, with your family. So there's a massive amount of of internal displacement. Uh, there's concerns concerns about uh, raids from either sides. There's the the chronic insecurity of people who have to travel uh, from one area to another um, through running running the gauntlet. Um, of uh, of armed groups on the on the way. Uh, so, f- uh, for example, if you're if you're somebody who lives in a government area, has to travel through areas where Taliban are you know, are are operating, uh, you know that there could be a Taliban checkpost uh, in which they will stop your vehicle, get you out, demand to see your telephone, go through your contact lists. If they consider that any of the numbers in your phone. Um, are uh, are um, suspicious, indicating you're, for example, in touch with the security forces, and they can summarily execute you. Um, and yet, Afghans have to travel. Um, so, um, for, uh, you know, uh, people moving in a war-torn country run the gauntlet of multiple uh, armed factions. Thank you very much for that vivid set of insights. That's so fascinating. And as well as engaging in commentary of the kind that we're engaging in now hearing from you speak, you've also, Michael, written extensively on your work and, and on peace building in Afghanistan and elsewhere. Could you say something for listeners, please, about your view of the importance, but also some of the challenges involved in documenting and in analysing the achievements of local peacemaking? When I was listening to the the description of the... Um, uh, the group of elders from the Uzbek community uh, who were heading heading over uh, to sort of like the, the local Taliban headquarters to for, uh, to challenge them and basically say you know you you know we as the respected civilians in our area will not uh, allow you to for, um, to bring your forces in and you know, try and capture some more security posts. Um, the uh, the colleague who was describing that to me, he immediately said, you know, and um, nobody else knows about this unless we document it. And I think that's um, uh, I think that's the that's the importance of documenting what's going on. Um, uh, one of the other areas which I'm familiar with and since very attached to the. the uh, Around 5,000 families were displaced last year by fighting in the the district center. There's a a beleaguered um, army base there, uh, and Taliban have been trying to take it for around a a year. There are over 1,000 shops and small businesses in the the district headquarters, which are largely abandoned. Some of them were mined um, during that conflict. Now, on the basis of agreement between the yeah, um, the the local Taliban military command, 
uh, some of the, the the key civilians there, so the chief cleric of the um, uh, of the the bazaar, they have organized a, a a resettling of the villages around the district headquarters, and they're gradually opening up the shops um, in the uh, in the district HQ, and. Uh, you know, this is a joint effort between the local civilians um, and the Taliban. And there's this really ambiguous relationship with uh, this is the Taliban's national leadership. Uh, they're not in, they're, you know, they're not involved. They haven't directly opposed. There's a certain amount of permission for it that they, or at least there's not, you know, it's like no objection to it. Um, a really subtle process, which is transforming lives. And unless somebody documents it, nobody gets to know about it. This is a, um, this is part of the lived reality of the conflict. This is the real dynamics of it. And this is about Afghans changing the way their country is, um, despite, um, this, you know, national, national conflict with international dimensions raging around them. This is Afghans showing agency, uh, but in a way in which, um, neither will their national leadership or even will international community get to know about unless somebody documents. And because on the issue of the, um, yeah, uh, yeah, comment I wanted to make on the, uh, on the state of the conflict here, uh, I have, you know, basically spent the, the, the COVID crisis, uh, in Afghanistan. I've had an opportunity to, to travel around the, the country. And it is absolutely remarkable just how the, the international and Western footprint in the country has almost disappeared. This is, you know, a country with, during the 40 years of conflict, in every stage, um, the, this is the, there's been a big aid operation, really quite visible. Over the past two decades, um, there's been international you know, military operation as well. These are almost invisible now. I've, yeah, in the past four months, I've literally um, spotted UN vehicles four times, whereas normally you'd bump into them every day. Um, they, you know, the international military are basically cooped up in their bases. Um, it's absolutely remarkable how the, the Western footprint in Afghanistan since the coming of COVID has just disappeared. It's such a vivid and important set of recollections and observations and insights that you give. I mean, we've heard today from one of the world's most globally respected experts on Afghanistan, and we've heard about observations close at hand, which you can only get by that kind of intimacy of understanding. We've heard a fascinating set of insights from Professor Semple of the the complex levels and geographies and practicalities of peacemaking and the contingent changes which things like the COVID-19 crisis have brought upon it. I think also what Michael's talked about today reflects what can be done by experts like him at the heart of the work that the Mitchell Institute at Queen's tries to do, where you combine academic expertise, insights, debate and documentation with practical ways of looking at making the world a far better place. It's been a fascinating discussion, discussion, Michael, and I'd just like to say on behalf of everyone who's listened, a profound thanks to Professor Michael Semple. Thank you. Please rate and review and share this podcast.